This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've been going through the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, talking about um, the end times from the word of Jesus. We've talked about some of the expectations that the Jews had, but I want to go ahead and give you the expectations that all of us need to have when we look towards the future. The bottom line is, in case you don't know this or you've listened to too much Joel Osteen, but things are going to get really rough before the rapture, really rough. A lot of Christians believe that everything's just going to rock on, it's going to be great, and then when we lose our job or we can't afford to go to the nicest restaurants or something happens, it just, you know, annoys us a little bit. We can't get all the cable channels that we want, that Jesus will take us away from that tribulation and immediately rapture us. It's not the way it plays out in Scripture. The church will not go through the tribulation period. We never experienced the wrath of God, but there's so much turmoil that leads up to that that the entire world is willing to throw their allegiance to one man, maybe of a a European descent, Muslims, Christians, Catholics, uh, non-professing Jews, everybody, atheists, just throw their allegiance to him. Can you imagine how cataclysmic the world must be at that time. The bottom line is that uh, it's going to get rough, and what many people don't realize is it's going to be especially rough, probably more so than other nations for the United States, for us. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is this. During the tribulation period, that seven-year period, Israel stands alone. There's no great Satan to protect her. There's no the United States. We don't send arms there. We don't sell them our airplanes. Uh, God is the protector of Israel. So during the tribulation period, either we have abandoned Israel or we're in no condition at all to even help Israel. If we were their protector, if we were a country that once you know abandoned them just like the rest of the world, we would be found to be in that confederation of Gog and Magog and Meshach and Tubal and all that, but we're not. The fact is that uh, Israel actually stands alone because what it shows in Scripture is God is the only protector of Israel. Now what I want you to see is not necessarily what happens to Israel, but how what happens to our nation in order for Israel to fulfill these prophecies. And everything that happens, all the wars and rumors and wars and pestilence and all that kind of stuff, all the the beginning of birth pangs, even prior to that, happens in a a three-and-a-half-year period. It happens quickly. It happens cataclysmically. This is one of the things we're going to be talking about next week, how one of the the three sets of seven judgments in Revelation, they just roll on, on, on top of each other with increasing urgency, like a woman's labor when she's getting ready to give birth. In the you know, in the seal judgments, it may take several years for those to play out. When it comes to the, the bowl judgments or the trumpet judgments, those things take place in a matter of months, and the vile judgments or the bowls of God's wrath, those things may be a few days. I mean, we see this increasing pointing in that direction. The United States will no longer be Israel's protector. As a matter of fact, if you'll study Scripture, you'll find the United States is not even a minor player when it comes to end-time eschatology. We are not included at all in Scripture. I will go through this with you really quick one time, if you'll turn to Ezekiel 38. I know we've talked about this at length, and we will be talking about this as we go through more of Matthew chapter 24. But there are two references that could possibly refer to the United States. One of them is in Ezekiel chapter 38. If you remember, we're looking prophetically here. Uh, Ezekiel 37, of course, you have this valley of dry bones, and it prophesies Israel coming back into the land. Ezekiel 38, you have this this massive invasion that's being this taken place against Israel. These confederations of nations are coming against it. 
I'll go ahead and begin in verse number 8. For example, it says, after many days you will be visited. Well, when will that happen? In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people from the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now them all dwell safely. This is false security. It's talking about Israel here. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan and you will say, I will go up into Israel and I will plunder her. Verse 11, I will go against a land of unwalled villages living in peace. I will go unto a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. And why? To take plunder in and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Who will do this? What nation is this confederation? And we will find that in verse number 13, it said, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions. Now, they're not part of this confederation, but they're standing back and they're watching this take place and they're saying, oh, wow, why are you doing that? I don't understand what's going on. Maybe we need to have a meeting about it, but there's no protection that takes place here. Sheba, which is Saudi Arabia, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. And if you'll study Ezekiel 38 and you'll look at the people groups, you'll find out that these this is pretty much Great Britain and all their young lions. It's kind of strange when you think about that. This happens to be the crest of the uh, the English Empire. And the, si- the sign of the English Empire is the lion. The, uh, the national animal for England is the lion, just like for the United States, we would say it was the bald eagle, correct? And so you've got this this merchants of Tarshish, you've got Sheba and Dedan and these other countries that aren't involved in this conflict at this time, but they're sitting back along with the young lions, the countries that were created, that were offsprings of the great lion, Great Britain, and of course the United States is one of those. And so it is believed by many scholars that this may be a reference to the United States. We are not coming to Israel's aid, either because we have rejected Israel can't imagine that happening, or we're in no situation or ability to do that. And then we get to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 talks about this Gog and Magog confederation coming from the farthest recesses of the north, and they're coming down with Rosh and Meshach and Tubal, and, and they're coming down to destroy Israel, and something happens to prevent that from taking place. Uh, chapter, um, chapter 38, verse number 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, and again, we will go into this in more detail in the weeks to come. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. This is the Russian confederation here. And I will, this is God, turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow, or literally a launcher, out of your left hand and cause the arrows, literally a projectile, to fall out of your right hand. And you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel and all your troops and all your people who are with you. I will give you to the birds a prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. You shall fall upon the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So how does that take place? In other words, what does God do to be able to destroy this Russian confederation? And he tells us in the very next verse, he says, and I will send fire. God will cause it to happen on Magog and on those who live in security on the coastlands, plural. Not coastland, but coastlands, plural. What possible nation could that be? Why don't you take a look here? You know, we've got a lot of nations that have a coastland. We have here, and we have China has a coastland, and Russia has a coastland, and Australia is surrounded 
by a coastland, but only here do we have countries that have coastlands. We have one coast here and one coast here. Canada is the same way. Mexico, it's pretty much uh, where we live. And there's only one superpower that is, has the ability to stand against Gog and Magog that has coastlands. And scholars believe that it uh, is the United States that that's referring to. And if you will read on, uh, you will find out that in the rest of this chapter, you will find out that it is a nuclear exchange because there's all this debris left around and there's these bodies left and they send these special people out to mark the bones, almost like to stay away from the radioactivity. It is an amazing picture of what the future should be. The outlook for the United States in end-time prophecy is not good at all. And if we want to not even take our nation, let's just bring it back to us as believers. Look what it says in the passages that we're talking about in Matthew. And again, we'll go into more detail next week. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do we not hear about that every day? But see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Oh, what does that mean? It's going to get worse. Wars and rumors of wars are not bad enough for the end. It's actually going to get worse. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. These are just the beginning, the beginning of sorrows, which means it's not even close to being over. And a lot of Christians say, well, God will rapture us out. We'll be gone. We won't have to suffer any of that kind of stuff. God wants me to have my best life now, so I don't have to worry about anything. I can just kind of rock on, eat, drink, and be merry. It's not what the Scripture holds up here. It continues. Then, this is a time verse, they will deliver you. Now, he's speaking to his disciples. He wasn't talking necessarily about then. They would deliver Peter and so-and-so at the end times. They would deliver those followers of Christ, which is us, up to tribulation and kill you, just like they're doing that all over the world right now. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then, the time verse, many will be offended like they are today and betray one another like they do today, and hate one another like they do today, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because a lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved or delivered, and we'll talk about that later. The expectations are that things are not getting rosier, they're actually getting worse. Now listen very carefully. Tough times are ahead for us. We've entered into a trade war with China. And I know many of you, I read about that. Hey, it's no big deal, trade war. Go Trump. Yeah, okay, go Trump. The uh, trade war with China is something that needs to be done, but you don't understand the pain and the suffering economically that our nation's going to suffer because of that. I mean, China, we don't even think about this trade war. If you look at the Chinese press, they are angry. They are, they're ready to go to war on this, and they hold more of our T-bills than any other nation on the planet right now. As a matter of fact, for the first time ever, just as last week, the number one news anchor in China, a very stoic, non-emotional, we-don't-show-what-we-really-feel culture. The Anderson Cooper of that, that culture right now used profanity. He was so worked up about the United States and this trade war. There's troops that are massing, uh, amassing right now on the border of Hong Kong. China's blaming us and our rhetoric for the riots that are going on in Hong Kong. It is very turbulent time right now to have a trade war with anybody, but we're doing it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but what I am saying is there's going to be tough times ahead. Then we have the election. Good night. You saw the Democrats that are all standing up on a stage talking about stuff like they were born on the moon. True? Now, one of two things are going to happen. One of those people are going to get elected, and then who knows what's going to happen to our nation and all the rights that we have, or Donald Trump will get elected again. And if they're this angry and this upset now, what do you think is going to happen then? I mean, it's going to be burning in the cities. It's going to make what happened in, in the, you know, the seven months in Chicago in the 70s seem like nothing. It's right around the corner. 
there's an overt attack on Christianity. I'm on Facebook last night, and there's, I'm reading these posts about the El Paso shooting. Y'all knew about that, correct? The El Paso shooting. And you know who's getting blamed on Facebook? Trump and you and me as believers in Christ. You know, there's this profanity about your prayer and your God, and this is your fault and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was so simple for the entire Nazi nation to turn against the Jews after the Rashtide was burned down. And, and all of a sudden, they, they just blamed it on them. And the Jews had nothing to do with that. But the fervor in the country was so intense about finding a scapegoat who's going against what we want to have happen, like the entire Democratic and our media platform right now, that just a few years later they were carting him away to, to uh, concentration camps. But that can never happen here, right? These are the times in which we live. You have this push of this homosexual agenda, you know, constant, always in front of us. Disney now having to put characters like that in all their movies and all their sitcoms. and It's almost like... You know, you come out as straight and you're a racist, you're a homophobe, but if you come out as gay, then we're going to give you the job and exalt you to the platform. Where's all that coming from? And you can't go to the courts because the courts are totally politicized. There's judicial tyranny everywhere. Every time Trump or any president tries to do something, some judge says no. And, and then, you know, we have a system to be able to determine whether or not a Supreme Court justice is qualified to serve. I can't imagine anybody wanting to do that after what they did to Kavanaugh. Can you? And nobody says anything about it. This is the nation in which we live right now. There's corruption in every single one of our institutions. Even in the church, as Vic was talking about, with the satanic plants coming in, you should spend some time looking at the social justice movement and how it has infiltrated the Southern Baptist Convention. The heads of the seminary, the heads of the, of the denomination itself are all committed social justice warriors, and it sounds good on the surface, but it's going to filter down into the churches, and it is going to be, they're the ones that are going to be turning on you. Ones that stand for, for biblical Christianity, even within our own ranks. Then you have God's unsettling. You have earthquakes. I read an article that said over the last three months there's been over 10,000 earthquakes in California alone. Some of them large, some of them you can't, can't uh, hardly feel, but they're there on the seismograph. You have droughts. This is massive drought going on in our own nation where 48% of the farmers haven't even, haven't even planted their corn crop and grocery stores like Kroger's are, are already warning their, their, People on their mailing list, there will be shortages of vegetables this year because of the drought going on in the United States. There's hurricanes and there's flooding, and it seems like God is, is beginning to move. Something's about to happen here. A total societal breakdown where Antifa can go around and do the things that they do and beat up reporters, and, and nobody cares. Nobody talks about it. Hatred among citizens, our entire nation, our political system is designed to call you a racist, to call you a homophobe, to call you somebody terrible, to drive wedges between family and between people in order to achieve their agenda. There's actually talk. It used to just be in quiet circles, but it's becoming more in the forefront now of a second civil war. It's almost inevitable, they say. I mean, no matter what the position is, you have 48 and a half people are against it and 48 and a half percent of the people are for it and everything is decided by a two or three percent group of citizens. I mean, our nation is more divided than it's ever been. And then on top of that, you have things that happened to El Paso yesterday. And last night before I go to bed, I hear about Dayton, Ohio. Did you hear about that one? Two mass shootings in one day. Can you imagine the rhetoric that's going to be just constantly pushed about gun control and taking away your guns and disarming the citizenry? This is the times in which we live. Now, what happens tomorrow and the next day and the day after? What lie is spread? What deception takes place? What other church capitulates to the dark side? How closer do we come to some sort of of societal Armageddon, and you and I, as believers in Christ, when we're supposed to be in tune to all this, just rock on like it doesn't matter. 
Like there's always going to have tomorrow that it's going to be okay. If anything, this should inspire us and spur us on to learn more about the Lord and lean more on Him than we ever had before. But we don't. And again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. I'm not, I'm not talking down to you because I'm in the same boat that you are. But we don't. Karen, on a scale from one to ten, where are you? An eight. You know, a six, a five. How, did you read the Bible today? No, I meant to, but it was too busy. I've got two other things to do. And we keep pushing God aside and sweeping Him under the rug because there's these other voices that we allow ourselves to listen to. And days go into weeks and weeks into months and months we hope into years, but we're running out of time. Everything that we're devoting our life to that isn't Christ-centered means nothing. Nothing. It all will burn. It means nothing. The only thing that truly matters is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sunday school faith, and again, I'm not picking on him, Max Licato kind of faith, nice little stories, and I feel pretty good about it, is not going to cut it in the time. They're not even cutting it now, but it's not going to cut it when things get dark. Right now, the church collectively in the West is viewed as obsolete and irrelevant because we are obsolete and irrelevant because there's no light, there's no salt in us that goes out into the dark world and 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 shows a difference. Instead, we put it up under a bushel and we just kind of hide because we want to make as much money as this guy makes or have a bigger house or, or do all the things that the world does. He never placed us on this planet for our best life now. He placed us on this planet to proclaim a witness to Him. And when we become too comfortable here, sometimes He has to shake us up by taking away our comfort and turning us into the people that He wants us to be. Your personal faith and trust in the Lord needs to become, as rapidly as possible, the most important thing in your life. There is no excuse for pushing God to the curb. Your job, your family, their soccer practice, all it, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Because the day will come, as it has in other countries, and, and has, as it is now in other places, and as the Word has prophesied, when that may be all you have. All you have. How do we do that? I mean, how do we how do we change our view of God, and how do we change our our commitment to Him? How do we how do you know Jesus says that we we don't know the day or the hour, but He does say that we can see the signs of the times, that we can see how it's rapidly moving to a conclusion here. What one word sums up what we need to focus on as a church, and that word is simply trust. Your whole spiritual life is built on trust. If you trust Him, you're committed to Him. If you trust you, then you're committed to you. If you trust Him, then you leave the results up to Him. If you trust you, then you're going to strive and work and do everything you can to create the results that you want. If you trust Him, then His will is paramount. If you trust you, then your will is paramount. And God, I want you to do what I want you to do. I was doing a word study of the word trust I was looking for a passage that kind of summarizes it, and and I'm just really amazed at all the things in Scripture. How many times, even in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us to trust. In the Psalms, 70-something times. In the Proverbs, 30-something times. Trust, trust, trust. Childlike faith is trust. Trust Him not just for our eternal life, but trust Him for everything. So I went to a classic passage You've heard it over and over again. I'd like you to turn to it if you would, please. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. If you were reading a proverb a day, this is the one that you would have read yesterday. But probably 
if you're like me, you got to that and you just kind of skimmed over it because you've already memorized that verse. You already know what it means. And so there's really no reason to focus on it anymore because, ah, trust in the Lord with all your heart and believe not and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And, and then he'll take care of everything else. He'll direct my paths. He'll give me wisdom and understanding. He will make my ways smooth. I know that. Show me something that I don't. One of the things the Lord impressed upon me to share with this with you is that it's not about what you know, it's about how you live. It's about what you do. It's about how much faith you place into what you know. This is the classic, one of the most famous and the most powerful and the most blessed of the if-then promises in Scripture. If you do this, then I will do this. Well, God, I want you to do that. I want you to direct my path. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to lead all to you. I want to be, I want to bear your fruit. I want to be your hands and feet. All the stuff that we pray. I want that promise. Then fulfill the ifs. You fulfill the ifs and God fulfills the thens. If you trust in the Lord, how? With all your heart, whatever that means. Is there more? Yes. What does that trusting look like? Well, it looks like this. That's the positive. Here's the negative. And if you lean not on your own understanding, when you define that word, it's shocking. And in all your ways, you acknowledge him. And I want to know what that word acknowledge means. Then, the promise, then he will direct your paths. There's faith and there's security and there's confidence, and there's peace, and there's rest from someone who knows that I have fulfilled the if, and God is bound by his word and his covenant to fulfill the then. And that's my goal for us today, is is to show you exactly how glorious that then is, but to show you exactly what's required in the if. And so we're just going to look at a couple of these words. First one, of course, is trust. I'm going to call it batah. It's actually batah, and it's a little hard to say, but the word is batah in my vernacular here. To trust, several words used for trust in the Old Testament. This means to be confident. It's the feeling of safety and security that is felt when one can rely on someone or something else. It's the kind of feelings that your kids have when you tuck them in bed at night. It doesn't matter how evil the world is out there. It doesn't matter whether or not your house is about to get foreclosed on. It doesn't matter whether there's nothing in the refrigerator to eat. Your kids don't even care about that. They don't even know about that because that's your job. Instead, you tuck them in bed at night and they have this trustful feeling. It's my bed. It's my comforter. It's my stuffed animal. There's my mom and my dad and they're saying a prayer and they're tucking me in and it's safe and secure because they're there to trust me. It's the peace that you have knowing that God is in absolute, total control. That you don't have to worry, that you don't have to fret, that you don't have to to make things happen or manipulate or, or force someone to do something that you think is right for them. It's arresting. God, you are sovereign. God, you are king of the universe. And I rest and I trust in you. I'm to trust not in me, not in man's schemes, but trust in the Lord with complete confidence, with all my heart. Let me show you how this word is used elsewhere. I want you to really get a handle of this. In the Hebrew, uh, the English word trust is an abstract. In other words, there's always an object. There's something that you can sense. Um, I'm sorry, there's something that you can't sense. It's an abstract. But in the Hebrew, it's a concrete object word, so it's always associated with a sense. I trust in this, or I trust in that, or my trust is based on this. Therefore, in the Old Testament, the trust has always got to have a context. That's why it says, trust in the Lord. Well, haphazardly, whenever I want to, whenever it feels good, whenever I'm beyond my ability to control my circumstances, then I've done everything I can do. I'll trust him. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Literally, it means to cling to something. Like a, like a life preserver in the middle of a flood. Like if you were drowning and somebody came out to you and they were going to rescue you, you would cling to them with everything that you had. 
for my safety, my security, for my very life, is what the word means. Trust. Beautiful picture of this is found in Proverbs 31, where it talks about the virtuous wife. It talks about the kind of wife that honors the Lord and how her husband feels about her. It says, who can find a virtuous wife? For his worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband, and this word is now translated, safely trust in her, so that he will lack no gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. I mean, all I can tell you is about my relationship with Karen. I have trusted people and been betrayed. I've been betrayed by my own family. I've been betrayed by people that I go to church with. I've been betrayed by my friends. I have, I have at times been thrown under the bus by my own children and technically been betrayed by them. I've been betrayed by my government. I've been betrayed by my best friends, but I've never been betrayed by my wife. Never. Because my heart safely trusts in her. She's really the only person that I absolutely 100% trust. And the Lord uses that as the greatest picture of trust between two humans is a marriage. Not all of you in here have been blessed like I have to be married to a spouse who's trustworthy. Some of you have had that trust violated. Some of you have been have trusted the person who's supposed to treat you the best and they've absolutely treated you the worst. Some of you have, you know, affairs that have happened and, and I, I can't imagine what that pain is like. But if you had the perfect marriage on this face of glory, it's a picture of the kind of trust work to have in the Lord. Trust with all your heart. Well, I, I, I don't trust, so I have separate checking accounts. How stupid is that? I have a prenuptial agreement because, you know, if it doesn't work out, I want my stuff and she wants her stuff. Or I refuse to give my, put her on my assets or my assets in her name because it may not work out. But it's not trusting. And so we think that we're going to relate to God that way because that's the way we relate to fallen people. But the reality is that if you had the best marriage, married to the most incredible trustworthy spouse, that even God is more trustworthy than them. Amen? More translations. Proverbs. I just looked at the Proverbs passage here. He was surety for a stranger that I'm, I'm actually put my name and my credit. I've actually agreed with a stranger that I would guarantee their loan. Man, why would I do that? And caught me in a, a weakness. Now, now I'm afraid. I'm afraid they're going to default on the loan. It's going to come back on me. I'm afraid they're going to make late payments. It's going to destroy my, my credit. He who is surety for a stranger, a, a stranger will suffer. But one who hates being surety is secure. Same word. Is confident. Have that feeling of safety and security and something in someone else. I can almost feel the joy of me not having to worry about how someone else's actions is going to affect me. And there's, there's a peace that comes with that. You know, I got myself out from under that bad financial decision I made. Now I feel safe and secure. I'm free. I'm at rest. Same word. Or this one. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Same word, bata, bold. How can I be bold? Because I'm, I'm clothed in his righteousness, that I'm confident, that I, I, I have a feeling of safety and security that my God will take care of everything. He is my God, and I trust him that much. No matter what the circumstances are like, no matter who betrays me, no matter who does anything, it's that kind of trust. I hate to always go back to it, but that scene I can't get out of my mind in Facing the Giants. About to lose his job. Uh, they can't have any children. The whole life is closing in on him. And so he spends all night long in prayer, and he, he walks out into the middle of the, the field out there and and his wife's not quite with him on this yet. And, and, you know, he makes this faith declaration to the Lord, you are my God. If I lose my job, so be it. If you don't want me to have kids, that's up to you. But you are my God, and you're on the throne. And his wife comes up to him, and 
He says, if God never gives us children, would you still love him, still trust him? And she had no answer. Do you remember? But we do. No matter what happens, we do. It's not our job to fix it. It's our job to rest and to trust in our sovereign creator. If you understand his goodness and you understand his sovereignty, boldness should follow. You ever been there? You ever felt that? Trust. There are other Hebrew words that are used for trust. This one that we looked at now, uh, the ta, of course, talks about confidence and a feeling of security. There's also a word called hasha. And this word talks about the seeker take refuge. It's really tough times right now, and so I'm going to run to my dad's house. I'm going to run up under his wings. I'm going to be protected by who he is. It literally means to, to run up to a shade tree for rest and security in the middle of a storm. It, uh, again, the idea is to lean on someone, to trust someone during a time of trouble. You see pictures of um, parents taking care of their parents at nursing homes. I remember a long time ago, uh, there was a, a columnist called Irma Bombeck. Most of you probably don't even know who she was. And she, you do. Irma Bombeck was writing one day, and she talked about the fact that when she was a child, or when she was a, a parent, that she would drive in a car, and back then they didn't have all these seat belts like we do now, and car seats and all that kind of stuff. And whenever they would pull up to a, a stop sign, she would reach her hand over and just to protect her child and make sure. Remember, remember those days? Can't do that anymore. And she says as she got older one day, she was driving in her car with her older daughter, and as they pulled up to the stop sign, the older daughter reached out to do that to her mother. It's kind of that picture. And you know, trusting. God's going to take care of it. I've got this. Hasha. Matter of fact, gosh, I'm not going to have any time to finish this. Go to, go to, uh, to Psalm 2. I don't want to rush this just to get through it. And so, since we've only got about 15 minutes left, I am going to finish this on Tuesday. So I know many of you don't come on Tuesday. I'm going to ask you that you would make an exception to come this Tuesday so that we can complete all this. Psalm 2 is the first time in the Psalms we find the word trust. It's a, it's a conversation between the Trinity. You know, you have God the Father and God the Son that are having a conversation here, and you have the Holy Spirit kind of sums it up. And at the end, the Holy Spirit is counseling the kings of the earth and how they should treat the Christ. Beginning in verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is is kindled but a little. And then the good news. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is Hasha. This, this means that they seek refuge. You've got this evil world out there, but blessed are those whose Lord is their habitation, who, who the Lord is their strength, that seek their trust in him. The next time we see the word trust is in chapter 4, verse number We'll start with verse number four. He says, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah, rest, contemplate, breathe in. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your, this is not a shah, put your batah in him. Put your confidence in him. Offer to God what belongs to God and rest in the confidence of the trust you have in him. Chapter 5, verse number 11. But let all those rejoice who put their, this is back to Hasha, who put their trust in him, who run to him for safety, who refuge for shade, for protection. Now, I'm not going to go through, I, I, I had about seven or eight of these all, all the way up to chapter 13. I'm not going to necessarily read all these, but chapter, uh, I want to show you how these switch back and forth, and you need to find out which one they're talking about. Chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. That's Hasha. Chapter 9, verse 10. 
And those who know your name will put their trust. That's batak. That's back to the confidence uh, in you. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the Lord I put my trust. That's hashah. And it seems like every time you see the word trust, you need to determine exactly which one we're talking about. Trust. Back to Proverbs. Trust in the Lord, in Him, and Him alone. Not in your ability, not in your finances, not in your job, not in your entrepreneurial spirit, not in your ability to, to mediate um, disputes among people, not in our nation, not in the church, not in anything. But trust only in the Lord. What, what will I do? When? When I've moved beyond my ability to take care of it myself. We're Americans. We're entrepreneurs. We're, we're free people. It's our job to, to do the things that we want to do, and, and we try to fix it and manipulate it and, and, and get people to see it our way, and we get to the point where we're beyond our ability to control our environment, and then we finally turn to God. It's exactly the opposite of what the Scripture is teaching. What he's telling us is trust in the Lord with all your heart. All of it. So if I asked you, you know, what, is a, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean to me? Or what does that mean to uh, on the biblical? Well, let's look at the biblical side. The word heart is a translation of the word leb. And the heart means the seat of one inner nature as well as all of its components. It's basically what you would call your soul. It's your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality, your volition. It's who you are. Trust in the Lord with who you are, with everything that you think or everything that you feel or everything that you want to do. Or I know, but I just love him or I just love that situation or my heart tells me I need to do this. The Disney, just follow your heart. Never, never. It's deceitfully wicked. Your personality, I hear this all the time. Yeah, that's just the way I am. You know, I've always been that way, and I'm still going to be that way. But why you are is wrong. Oh, well, I know it's wrong, but I've always been that way. It's just my personality, and I don't want to change. No. It means all of that, the center part of your being. So that's what it means biblically. So what does it mean to you? Will trust him with everything? Like my business? Like how I'm raising my kids? Like who am I going to marry? like what's going to happen in the future, like how I spend my days, like the things I watch on television and the books I read and the people I hang around, the words that come out of my mouth, the food that I eat, my, what, everything? Isn't there some sort of exclusion in there? Well, maybe, but I don't see it in the Scripture, do you? It's an if of the if-then part. You know, we think that we can follow God haphazardly, and he is duty-bound to give us everything. But his word says that he doesn't honor the casual, especially when it comes to sanctification, but he honors the committed. If you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this, then this will happen. If you confess the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart God saved him from the, raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's he's God, it's his rules, it's his choice. So I'm not sure what it means to me, but I do know what it means scripture-wise. And the question is, are they the same thing? Does what all my heart mean to me in a practical setting the same thing as it means biblically? And if not, then we have some moving to do. It's our job to align ourselves with him. Now watch this. The word leb is also translated, to give you an idea of what's involved in it, just in the Proverbs, I didn't look anywhere else, just in the Proverbs, it's translated as your soul. I can understand that. But it's also translated as your understanding. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. It's also translated wisdom and consider, even it's used in a phrase like in the midst of. In other words, when you find yourself in the midst of, in the center of, which is what leb means, is the center of who I am. And there's few other ways that it's, it's used. Then I have to trust the Lord with all my wisdom. 
with all my understanding, with me considering exactly what it means to trust him in the midst of everything that I'm doing with my very soul, my mind, my will, my volition. It doesn't matter how I feel. I'm to trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean, this is the negative, this word is sahan. It means to rely or to find support. In other words, I'm not trying to get support from, from somebody else. Can I get support from my wife? Well, yeah, but that's she's not God. And God said that I'm to get my support from him. Now, God may use her to help me and use me to help her, but she's not the source of my happiness, and she's not the source of my security, and she can't be the source of my joy. That has to be found in him. True? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not, not on your own understanding. Gosh, this is the hard one for me. Yeah, but I see it this way, Lord, and it makes sense to me. Yeah, well, uh, are you God? No, but I have to go back and read the book of Job. Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I, I, I got it. I, I'm not, none of those things. The um, the standard line in our family is when I confess to my wife and family that I thought it, I did something that was kind of dumb. And, uh, you know, the, well, why did you do that? My answer is always the same. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And it did to me because I'm leaning on my own understanding of what it is. Now, let me make sure you let me make sure you get the clear picture of this. The word for understanding is benya. We've talked about this before. And it means comprehension, discernment. It also means righteous actions with a strong moral and religious connotation. So understanding means we're understanding, we're discerning things, we're seeing things, but we're acting on those things in a proper, God-fearing, moral kind of way. And we would assume from that 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 seems like a positive thing. That, well, why wouldn't I do that? Why, why, I don't understand. It's not necessarily bad for me to, to have an understanding of binyav things. If, it, it, you know, it brings me to a closer walk with him and God gave me a mind and, and I'm trying to sanctify my mind. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, as one example, Job 28 says this. Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. But that's a good thing. And to depart from evil is binyav is understanding. Well, departing from evil is a command of God. Right. But if you want God to direct your paths, listen very carefully, he takes all human element out of it because we're so easily deceived. In this passage, we are commanded not to lean, not to rely, not to seek support on our own discernment, even though it's coupled with, I'm trying to do the right thing here no matter how religious it may sound, but only on him. This is the hardest one for me. Well, God, I, I see what your word says, and I see what seems right in my own mind, and what I want to do seems to line up with your word, and so, God, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to make that stand. I'm going to do whatever it is. And if you've ever done that, you realize sometimes that turns out to be a disaster because God had a different plan. God was going before us. Because we can make the scripture almost say anything we want to satisfy our own desires. Have you noticed that? If I'm angry at Tim, I can find a biblical reason to be angry with Tim. We do that. And what he says here in the Proverbs is, no, I'm taking the human element out of it. Because your heart is deceitfully wicked. Above all things, the scripture says, who can know it? And what I want you to do is rely not on what even think you, what you think is right would be totally directed by him. It is the most, from what I found in my personal opinion, it is the most potent call for total dependence on the Lord I find anywhere in Scripture. Trust in the Lord completely. Does that mean I can trust in me? No. Can I trust in what other people say? No. You trust in the Lord completely. Now, he may communicate to you various ways his will with all your heart. And don't go to support for anybody but him. 
And he may use other people to communicate his message to you. But primarily it is just, can't I rely on what feels right to me? Can't I, can't I justify it in my own actions? And I've done that before. Bear the, bear the scars of that. It's if-then promise. And this is what the ifs mean. Because God's way are always higher than ours. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The most powerful passage here is the next one. In all your ways, acknowledge him. I've had to make some big changes in some of the things that I, in my life because the ways that I was going, they weren't necessarily bad, but they weren't acknowledging him. In other words, sometimes we uh, live in the gray areas. And, well, you know, it's not, it's not, really, it's not really a sin. And of course, it's not really something I'm really proud of, but it's just, it's just kind of okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. You want God to direct your paths, and we're going to find out what that means on Tuesday. You want God to, to be the center of your universe? Do you want to, to be able to have He shall direct your paths, the God Almighty, the great I Am, the Creator, your Father, God, Sovereign One, to direct your paths, especially as we see our world beginning to implode, then we have to follow the ifs. And I've had to make some changes in my own life. God is what I'm doing, honoring you. Because the word acknowledge, I mean, we'll talk about it Tuesday. It doesn't mean this. I'm going to acknowledge Debbie. Sup? You know, go tip, sup? All right, well, thanks for acknowledging my existence. It's not what the word means. It's the word yada. It's the same word for gnosko in the New Testament. To love and adore, to choose, to place our favor upon, to be experientially intimate with. Every area of our life, everything that we do at work, in our family, in our relationship with our spouses and our kids, how we interact with the culture, our entertainment choices, our relational choices, everything acknowledges Him, brings Him glory. And when you meet these requirements, it's like God opens up the floodgates and this sense of peace and serenity and confidence, no matter how much in turmoil your life is or our world is or how dark things seem, that we have this trust and this confidence knowing I can run to Him for safety and that I can rely on Him who truly loves me. Amen? Let me, let me pray.